my name is Justin LeClure, and I'm here today with... Good evening. <gasps> oh my god, it's Hitch himself in the room! Nah, folks, it's Will Sloan. Ah, the greatest prank that Hitchcock ever pulled, making me think he was Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. Oh no, it is Will Sloan! <laughs> and this week, we are talking about, for God's sake, at long last, the king of cinema, Mr. Director, Alfred Hitchcock. The master of suspense, if you will. Why did it take us so long to get to this topic? Because we needed to build our knowledge to finally add to the thousands of books out there dedicated to this great man. Every time I pick up a new issue of Sight and Sound and I go straight to the book review section, the first section everyone goes to, there's always some new book like, you know, Hitchcock and Gender, uh, The Making of North by Northwest. The Globalization of Hitchcock Cinema. <laughs> uh, perspectives on Vertigo. There's always some new piece of scholarship or biography. Because people can't get enough of Hitchcock, the entertainer. Oh, but he was so much more than that. Uh, so that's probably why it's taken us this long to get to him. And we will be talking about him in our own inimitable, uh, unique fashion by talking about some of his bad movies. We should say that this topic is completely subjective to us. That we can't really add anything to the Hitchcock scholarship in terms of getting a completely different perspective on something. So we can only come to it from our lives and look at these movies and go, are they bad? We'll be parroting the received wisdom as you would expect us to, but we decided to pick a couple of movies that we think just by general consensus, just by uh, wetting our finger and putting in the air and seeing which way the winds were blowing, seemed like ones that not a lot of people really like. But before we get to that, Justin, what's your relationship with Alfred Hitchcock? I don't have that much of a relationship with Alfred Hitchcock. I don't think I sat down and properly watched any of his movies until I got to university. And even then, doing it on my own time, not being forced to through a filmmaking class. How about you? Well, I remember the first time I ever heard of him was when I went to Universal Studios Orlando when I was eight years old, and they used to have a Hitchcock ride back then. That's how big a brand Hitchcock was and is, that they had a ride in 1997. <laughs> and people were lined outside the door to get in, I'm sure. I was so scared. Like, it started with this, like, very aggressively edited clip show of all the scary parts from all his movies. You know, the shower scene from Psycho, birds pecking a bunch of people. It had 3D moments, like you put on the glasses and you saw the big 3D kill from Dial M for Murder and stuff like that. Terrifying to me. Hitchcock's gigantic face leaning forward towards you being like, good evening. You're just like, ah! And, you know, as a precocious teenage cinephile, yeah, I saw Psycho. You didn't see Psycho when you were a teen? Nope. Wow. I think we talked about this before, that my parents never made me watch any movies, and none of my friends were like, Psycho, let's check that out. I mean, had I seen Psycho through the hundreds and hundreds of parodies and, like, classic Tiny Toons or The Simpsons? Yes, I had, just like I had seen Citizen Kane. Well, I'm sure that both of us over the years have seen, like, a huge chunk of this filmography. Of course. Just, just because, like, he's, he's Alfred Hitchcock, for God's sake. I and mean, you can approach him from a bunch of different angles like either oh look what he's doing within this genre cinema and doing it in a way that has ton of subversive or very mechanical builds or just like look how stylish he is look at all these wild camera tricks that he's doing so it's all there i have probably the same relationship with hitchcock that the median cinephile has with him which is that i think he's great i think he's made at least 
10 movies that are five bags of popcorn on the scale. I no have, one needs to talk about him anymore, so we're shutting this podcast down. <laughs> I don't have a special relationship with him. Mm-hmm. I have the same relationship with him that I do with pizza. It's great. We all agree it's great. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. right. But here, actually, here's what I will say, though. But is it like pizza that... You know, there's no such thing as a bad one that you can bite into every slice and be like, oh, I can enjoy this. It's pizza. I guess we'll find out as we as we discuss this. That's the bomber to the table, ladies and gentlemen. A little bit of Hitchcock uh, construction. Okay, I actually will say that there are a couple of famous Hitchcockian principles that I think about almost every day and that are central to how I and I'm sure you and I'm sure all the listeners understand the art of cinema. Mm -hmm. And one is the bomb under the table. Please explain it to the listeners. Well, so Hitchcock, he figured out early on in his career career that he wasn't one to do just the naked shock in one of his movies he had like a big shock suspense sequence and he didn't like that because it came out of nowhere and he didn't find that just shock for the case of shock there was much craft there because anyone can just go boo and scare someone but so the bomb on the table is you put that bomb there and you let the audience know that it's there now the characters don't need to know but the audience does and that's what builds suspense yeah the table could just blow up Mm -hmm. or you could be sitting there agonizing knowing it's gonna blow up get out of the room get out of the room for god's sake that's what's important to hitchcock when it comes to constructing suspense okay another very key thing is remember the scene in psycho of course you remember it uh it's right after the shower scene Norman Bates' mother has just killed Marion Crane. But then, even better than the shower scene, in my opinion, well, okay, as good as the shower scene, is the camera drifts through the room for a while, and then it drifts up to the window so you see the Bates' house. And then Norman comes back, and there's like five or ten minutes of him cleaning up. And it's in that moment we've spent the first 40 minutes following Marion Crane. She's the hero. And then there's this five-minute, ten-minute unmooring period where... The film is like, okay, what perspective is this story being told from? What story are we telling? It it, it just drifts. It's pure cinema for a moment. And then it's like, okay, then it fixes like a tick or something onto Norman Bates. And he's now the new subject. But what's great about that stretch of the film is that you follow Norman Bates try to hide the body of Marion Crane. And what Hitchcock does is you have that famous scene where the car goes into the lake and you're on Anthony Perkins' side of being like, well, is the car going to go in? Is it going to stay at the top? That's right. The car starts sinking. It's sinking. It's sinking. And then it stops. And the audience is like, oh, no! Even though that you are cheering on the murderer, but because of the construction of the film, you suddenly feel sympathetic because you're seeing through his point of view. You spend 40 minutes following Marion Crane. You've loved her, but not anymore. And uh, can I just read a quote from Hitchcock Truffaut, the great book? This is what Hitchcock has to say about Psycho. He says... I don't care about the subject matter. I don't care about the acting, but I do care about the pieces of film and the photography and the soundtrack and all of the technical ingredients that make the audience scream. I feel it's tremendously satisfying for us to be able to use the cinematic art to achieve something of a mass emotion. And with Psycho, we most definitely achieved this. It wasn't a message that stirred the audiences, nor was it a great performance or their enjoyment of the novel. They were aroused by pure film. By the way, one more thing I'll say about why Hitchcock is great is he really is or was twisted. You know, he liked murder. He liked mixing sex with murder. Some would say that he might be Me Too'd if he were alive today. I mean, he definitely would be. There's a whole movie about it. During that wave of Hitchcock biopics, you got Hitchcock and you got... That one with Toby Jones. That's right, about the making of the birds. But, you know, in Rope, that's that's Hitchcock. That's, that's what makes him a genius. And what's great about Rope, too, beyond the fact that it's that one long take, wink, you failed at that one, Hitch, but... 
that Jimmy Stewart is the catalyst for these students doing this stuff. In that movie, Jimmy Stewart is the ultimate troll saying like, what if you did do the perfect murder? Then some people do it. And he's like, oh no, this is bad. Yeah, and you never, you never fully escape the idea that maybe Hitchcock is on the side of the killer. So mm-hmm. maybe he basically thinks like the case for Jimmy Stewart in the movie is yeah but okay you can't go around killing people that's officially what the movie's about but then unofficially it's about but what if you could (laughs) exactly (laughs) what if you were a little bit better than these preppy rich boys who tried to pull it off and like he likes he likes killing he likes what the violence looks like in one of the movies that we watched torn curtain not to get ahead of ourselves but there's a killing in that movie a slow laborious killing that you know you can just feel him licking his lips Let's talk about Torn Curtain. We don't have to go chronologically through the films that we're going to talk about today because Torn Curtain coming very late in his career. This is one that when you get those box sets, you're like, oh, God, I guess Torn Curtain's on this, too. And you usually like flip past it. I mean, I had never seen it until yesterday. And this is one that was Hitchcock trying to follow his passion of making a regular bond movie in the sense of like boring bond is one way to do like it james, but like james bond you yeah mean. james bond uh, and i don't know why you know he didn't just adapt the john le carré novel but he just got obsessed with it and torn curtain is the result of going down this avenue so this movie came out in 1964 and he made psycho in 1960 which was his biggest hit and we should say that psycho was also hitchcock kind of reinventing himself that his movies has gotten kind of big and really bloated and psycho was his attempt to go all right i want to strip all of that away i'm going to use the team that does my tv shows who work incredibly differently to deliver a different kind of movie and it was successful. Like, when Psycho came out, Hitchcock hadn't made black and white films in a long time. But that's why it's special. That's why it's as jarring as it is. Huge hit. And then in 1963, he makes The Birds, also a big hit. And then in 1964, he made Marnie, which is a more atypical film. Many people now think it's one of his best. Not a huge success at the time. So Torn Curtain in 64 is a very commercial proposition it has two very big stars paul newman and julie andrews forced on hitchcock by the studio that's right it's back in the wheelhouse of north by northwest which was one of his other great hits and very topical subject matter again james bond as you say very popular at the time so this is a cold war spy thriller i had never heard anything good about this movie the main things i had heard are that it's boring and that the two leads are stiff julie andrews was forced on him by the studio And I understand that he just, I think he wanted Cary Grant for the Paul Newman role. And you can imagine, I mean, the movie would have been just radically different with Cary Grant. Well, Cary Grant would have approached it probably, you know, in his style, which is off the cuff, kind of. Well, it would have been like light comic. Exactly. Well, Paul Newman, he's all about like intense. Every time they cut to Paul Newman, you see like him calculating behind his eyes. Like, what is he thinking? What is he going to do next? It's a very stone faced performance. And I know from reading about the film the screenwriter has said that hitchcock's disinterest in the two stars sort of bled into the writing process so he became much more interested in all the minor characters and according to the people who worked on it he sort of lost interest in the movie halfway through making it another knock that people often have on this movie is the fakeness of the setting but it's east germany that's perfect for the setting isn't it well yeah so the the story uh, we'll say is that paul newman is a an american scientist uh, he's with his assistant slash fiance julie andrews they're going on a on a european vacation he says i just have to go to stockholm for a bit little does she know he's defecting 
to the Soviet Union in East Berlin. He's going to join the uh, scientific community there because he he was so upset that the American government actually didn't want to get rid of nuclear weapons. Look, the audience doesn't buy this for a second no. watching the movie. <laughs> no, no, he's I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that he's actually a double agent. Mm. But, but anyway, a lot of intrigue, a lot of twists and turns. The consensus seems to be, though, among critics at the time that the movie was pandering. There was a bit of a sense of like, oh, here's Hitch trying to give us what what we want, but not doing it as well as before. And also that it was old fashioned. All those matte paintings. There's a scene early on where like Paul Newman's at an outdoor cafe and the rear projection behind him is so obvious. Or Paul Newman on a tractor. And it's like the rear projection is like, you can't just shoot on a tractor, Hitch. Like, come on. Did you hear that? Hitchcock actually, for a while, you know, floated the idea of shooting in East Germany. <laughs> I don't <laughs> and, know how he would have done it, but... Uh, one of the proofs said, if he had really wanted to do it, he could have probably done it, but it would have still looked fakey. It would have still looked, you know, the same air that this movie has. I also think at this point, like, you don't you don't necessarily go to Hitchcock for... Realism? Yeah, like, I, I like, uh, you know, Cary Grant on a big fake Mount Rushmore. I mean, that's his style. So yeah. when you see his movies, that's what you're going for. Even though that people said on set that he was very obsessed with all the little details like oh i want to make sure that this is what they would be serving in east germany even though that hitchcock is famous as being someone who would say oh that's a fridge moment in the sense that you don't think about it while you're watching the movie but later on when you're getting something out of the fridge you're like wait a minute that made no sense i mean he's like he's a lot like you know kubrick or chaplin in this sense where there are these rigorous perfectionists who drove everyone to the limit and then the movies are the most unreal totally otherworldly constructions like they're they're so rigorous that they kind of become artificial yeah 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 well me and will are coming bursting through the door oh we're knocking down that wall to tell you guys that this movie's a lot of fun (laughs) i thoroughly enjoyed this movie i mean the thing is okay it's not as good as north by northwest no but But what what is is? (laughs) it's just a it's better than fucking almost anything i see now i mean Uh, the sequence that uh, will mentioned a little bit earlier of the murder of someone is so good (laughs) and i mean hitchcock has said in interviews that he designed this whole sequence with the idea of okay how hard is it to kill someone it would take a very long time now the way that it's done in this movie almost gets to tom and jerry levels at some point (laughs) or like sam raimi ish but the lengths of it and the way that it's shot the intensity of it is hitch you know firing on all cylinders there are a half dozen i think crackerjack set pieces in this movie even a scene of paul newman and a scientist going over equations so good and then you realize what he's doing halfway through the scene and you read it on paul newman's face as well you know the editing of the scene is great the way he builds tension i mean this movie is full of just all the mise-en-scene technical stuff that you love from hitchcock the Mm. blocking the compositions all that shit that i'm not great at describing and you could argue that he is disinterested in the political nature of this movie which is true that's fine like it's just an excuse for suspense set pieces like paul newman and julie andrews are riding a bus and they can be stopped at any moment and they'll be caught because there's another bus catching up with them behind Uh, great stuff great scene okay now i'm I'm coming in hot with my biggest contrarian take which is that i like paul newman in this movie i like paul newman in this movie as well yeah i think it's uh very different again it's different than what cary grant would have been i I think he's very hard to read for a lot of the movie Mm -hmm. which but that's the point of the character isn't it like yeah and 
it makes him ambiguous. It makes him he's not ingratiating. He's not instantly likable. So you're not entirely sure, even when you can kind of predict where the plot's going, you're not entirely sure how sympathetic to find him, especially given that all the Germans in the movie are uh, delightful Mm -hmm. and charming. And I think that's very important that, you know, people said that Hitchcock got obsessed with the supporting characters Mm -hmm. and that Paul Newman was asking too many questions. Hitch didn't like that. So they kind of had a tete a tete. But I think that only makes the movie better. Now, is the movie overlong and bloated? It's like, yeah, that's what Hitchcock was doing at the time. Like, there was no way out of that. That's who he was. And uh, Julie Andrews is fine. She has nothing to do in the movie other than be like, oh, no, as it goes along. Yeah, that could have been a bit better. So another movie that I picked was one early on in his career that never gets mentioned. And it's one that Hitchcock was basically contractually obligated to make. And that's Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So he arrived in America after a decade, almost two decades, directing in England in 1940. He made the triumphant Oscar-winning Rebecca in 1940, which, as Hitchcock himself said, isn't really a Hitchcock movie. But it was a triumph, nevertheless. He followed it with Foreign Correspondent, Suspicion. Two movies. Two much more typical Hitchcock movies. But in between, he made this movie. And in his interviews with Francois Truffaut, he said that he did it as a friendly gesture to Carol Lombard. She was very passionate about the script. He accepted in a weak moment. (laughs) So there were a lot of factors. He did have a contract with RKO. He had to deliver two movies. Money, of course, is a factor, as always. And he told Truffaut that he more or less followed Norman Krasma's screenplay since I didn't really understand the type of people who were portrayed in the film. All I did was photograph the scenes as written. Neither do I watching this movie. Okay, so you didn't like this. No, I didn't like this at all. I um, I thought it was okay. Did you chuckle? Did you laugh? I was amused. I, uh, I mean, it's hard for me to get passionate about this because, so it's a screwball comedy. It's no My Man Godfrey or anything. It's just a, No Preston Sturgis. Yeah, it's just a, a like a, if Hitchcock didn't direct this, this would be one that Warner Archives would put out. <laughs> it, or you might find it on Turner Classic Movies once a decade and you'd watch it. I'd watch it and, and I'd be say, like, all right. it's alright. Yeah. Um, so the plot is Carol Lombard and uh, not Cary Grant. Robert who, Montgomery. Cary Grant also dropped out of this one. It's Robert Montgomery, who I'm not that familiar with, but it's the two of them. They're a wealthy couple. They They, hate each other. uh, They have a tumultuous marriage where they're always fighting, but they essentially love each other. Or do they? And one day after a day long spat, they're made up and Carol Lombard asks her loving husband, well, if you could go back, would you marry me? And he goes, eh, I don't know. In perspective, probably not. <laughs> it's like, but no offense. I mean, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> but I, I, I like would marry that you. That's yeah, funny. That's funny. But anyway, because of a technicality, it turns out their marriage is void. And uh, the husband's like, hmm, that's interesting. And then she also says, hmm, that's interesting. And he thinks, uh, eventually he thinks, well, she'll come back to me. But she doesn't come back to him immediately. She nope, goes she off. gets a job, which she hates. How dare she go work? <laughs> she gets with his friend. Oh, uh, man, that friend's such a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. His partner-in-law who's like, well, I'm dating her now. Also, I'm her attorney. See, am I Am I maybe bringing you over to my side no, of this? I'm like, I hate this. I hate it so much. I, okay. You're making me hate it more just thinking about it. I'm hearing this plot and I'm chuckling. I'm starting to like this movie even more. There aren't a, a lot of laughs, but I like Carol Lombard. Robert Montgomery, I can take or leave. Yeah, I mean, his 
Hitchcock is definitely in autopilot mode in this movie. Yeah. Like he doesn't understand any kind of visual language that he can utilize to make this interesting. Oh, I think it looks fine. It, it, it's fine, but I'm saying that he he didn't find a perspective on it. That's why it's so generic. That it could have been directed by like some hack who was chained to RKO at the time. So the most famous story about Mr. and Mrs. Smith is that it uh, spawned the classic Doug Liman film starring Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Right? Uh, that's not, no, <laughs> not true. Just not a related. coincidence. But Hitchcock famously said actors are cattle back when he was in Britain. And apparently this comment crossed the Atlantic because Carol Lombard, as a publicity stunt, built a cattle pen on the set and invited reporters to take photos of it. Funnier than anything in this movie. <laughs> and anyway, the movie was profitable when it came out, and it's stuck around ever since, just as a footnote in the canon, just as a oh, movie Oh, that's that a Hitchcock movie? That's basically what it is. People look at it and they say, oh, he made a comedy? And then if you if you get deep enough, you watch this one. Now, other movies like Under Capricorn, there's something there, even though they qualify as bad Hitchcocks, that is fascinating. Like, he was obsessed with long takes in that film, and, like, everything plays out in seemingly 10-minute takes as Joseph Cotton, like, drunkenly walks through every scene. Now, while not a great movie, that I can, you know, sink my teeth into. And for me, there was nothing in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And that's why it's technically a bad Hitchcock film. But like Will said, it's just fine as a movie. Like, I'm I'm sure there's somebody out there who's like, this is my favorite movie I saw when I was a kid. Okay, well, I got one that's nobody's favorite movie. Well, maybe it's someone's favorite movie. 1969's Topaz, which was his follow-up to Torn Curtain. That's right, he had two duds in a row. Two alleged... spy films, too! Two alleged duds in a row. Oh, yeah, here we go. We're gonna come back in with the contrarian take. We're we're taking over Cuba, because this is the politics that are being dealt with in this film. So, Torn Curtain had been profitable... But it carried a certain stench of failure around it. And so Hitchcock's confidence was shaken. He started work on Frenzy, which was the movie he made after this, and which I love. You've yeah, seen Frenzy, Frenzy right? Yeah. yeah. He was obsessed with Frenzy, but nobody wanted to make it. Uh, but he was in a vulnerable enough place at this point, having just come off, you know, a couple of flops, uh, to accept a commission from the Universal Top Brass to direct this movie based on a best-selling book they had just purchased. Uh, this is a movie that I truly heard nothing good about. But, you know, when it started, I'm hyping myself up. I'm like, well, hey, it's a Hitchcock movie I've never seen. Do you look at that running time and you're like, oh my god, two hours and a half? <laughs> I, I, so I, I put it in and I think... Maybe it's 100 minutes. <laughs> I mean, you're deleting yourself at that point. I know. Well, I thought, I thought, I thought. You're like, please, this is the extended version. Give me the cut theatrical version. I thought if it's as long as Torn Curtain, I can, I can deal with this. Yeah. No, it's half an hour long. Not only that, it's a film with a non-ending. Oh <laughs> like, my it just god, doesn't exist. Has, okay, well, we can talk about what it's about, but I want to talk about Frederick Stafford, the star. Mm-hmm. Fuck this guy. I hate this guy. Well, he sucks. Um, I've never seen a worse leading man than this. So Hitchcock <laughs> pulled him out of obscurity because he didn't want to have to deal with a Paul Newman type on set. Well, and I think he got him because accomplished. he had seen him in the French spy spoof OSS Sunset. And because of that, he thought that he would be the perfect guy for his Bondish style hero. Someone who had appeared in a Bond style film. See, this is the director who says actors are cattle. <laughs> yes. This is this is the guy who doesn't. I mean, he's almost like getting into Robert Bresson territory with getting this guy who well, no charisma doesn't like I don't like his face. Well, this. Yeah, <laughs> he looks off brand. Like he looks like he should be starring in an Italian like spy film, like a Euro spy film. <laughs> 
Yeah. And his last name should be Wood or something like that. Yeah. So anyway. And he's barely the star of this movie, though. Hitchcock is bored and just goes off into weird discretions following other characters. And you're like, what is this movie about? So uh, what it's about is that there's a Soviet officer who defects. That's right. It's another defection story. He comes to the United States. He wants amnesty. And he reveals, as a matter of fact, the Soviet Union has nuclear weapons that it's hiding in Cuba. And I mean, I could tell you more about the plot. It's a big, tangled, convoluted web of a plot. With That's not exciting, though. So it's many, not worth it. Many characters, you know, not many of them are interesting. They're like, you, I could point to scattered moments in the movie. I mean, you love fun. the performance of John Vernon, Canadian's I, own, as Fidel Castro. <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, I don't know. Did you ever see the movie where Jack Palance of plays course. Castro? I yeah. only saw it on a beat up 16 millimeter print at Trash Palace, <laughs> but I have seen that film. It's Richard a, Fleischer's. Yeah, Che. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, performance comp to that one i mean when when he showed up i couldn't believe it <laughs> and you're like oh he's just a little role nope he's basically one of the main supporting ones i mean there are some well-known european actors in it michelle piccoli is in it Noiret, bertrand tavernier's guy is in it at the end uh, but yeah there are many characters and i mean i don't know what else to say about this movie except it's boring it's bland looking there's too there's too much in it I mean, the one part where I can kind of feel Hitchcock getting excited is with the lead character having an affair mm. with, like, the spy woman in Cuba. But even that... There's a great anecdote in Patrick McGilligan's book on Hitchcock where Hitchcock was obsessed with shooting a nude scene. He's like, I'm going to show breasts! <laughs> and eventually they were like, no, you can't. The star doesn't want to do it. And he's like, no! <laughs> so you don't even get that. Instead, you get one neat murder scene that... I when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's the drop of water in the desert that is this movie where a woman dies and her dress splays out when she hits the ground and it's shot from a high angle. My God, does it peter out too? And I don't know, from that Hitchcock quote that I read earlier where he says, I'm not interested in the story and I'm not interested in the characters. I'm interested in like pure cinema, basically. Well, he you also don't get a lot of it here. You get a lot of story. <laughs> he said that he wanted to utilize color to indicate like storytelling and mood mm -hmm. and even admit himself. He's like, eh, I failed at it. It didn't work out in this film. Uh, ending on a bit of a down note there, uh, I mean, you love Frenzy, which I was the movie Frenzy. that came right after this. So he had another upswing instead of just like sliding downwards into what was his last? The fam family plot. Well, well, Frenzy's good because it's back to the basics. It's uh, a real like dirty crime movie. Yeah, dirty old man movie where he's like, I got nothing to lose. He's like, I can do like sex stuff. Mm. Like he can really, the, the subtext can become text finally. And then family plot's pleasant enough. Yeah, it's know. fine. It's just, you know, not that good. But I think that Topaz is probably the worst. Like, how could it get worse than this? Like, two hours and a half, no visual invention, boring characters, like, got nothing. This is the worst Hitchcock. Uh, Hitchcock... He's a good director. Mm -hmm. I feel like we could return to his singular films in like Patreon episodes and stuff like that and just talk about those. And, you know, there are a lot of his silent ones I haven't seen. Too. Oh, those are good. Like, I've seen The Lodger. I've seen Blackmail, but I haven't seen like Rich and Strange. Murder! Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Oh, that one's great. I yeah. love those early ones because those are the tight 70 to 80 minute Hitchcocks. Like, you get all the style in a neat little package. <laughs> So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So, our first email is from Tony Marshall, and he goes, Hey guys, we are not that far apart in age, but I feel only people in your age bracket. Yeah, that's right, our age bracket. <laughs> and with your expertise can answer this question. Why is Eli Roth a thing? 
When I first got into online discussions of film, the same names came up again and again. Was that group of Tarantino, Smith, Whedon, Wright being considered the best writers who nerds loved, and along with them would be Ross. As a naive little boy, I watched everything he hosted, top 50 scary movie moments, and somehow it got in my head that he was considered the Tarantino of horror. So I went in expecting love of his old movies, good scares, and well-written scenes. Instead, I got Cabin Fever and Hostel. I also got in my head that he must be the Saw guy. And in looking back, that's Well, that's James on Wan. you, I have yeah. to say. <laughs> Is it just that he's photogenic, a fanboy, and had bigger directors as friends? I, yeah, you pretty much answered your own question yeah. there. Or is there something I'm missing about when he came onto the scene? Thanks, Tony. Well, I think, first of all, yeah, the Tarantino connection is very important. Uh, he knew a lot of the right people, but also Eli Roth really ingratiated himself with that like online fanboy world. Like he was buddying around with Harry Knowles and people like that. So he had both uh, the high level support and the kind of pseudo grassroots support. And he was a fan well. too yeah. when he was doing this stuff. It's and like, that's the Kevin Smith's kind of spell, right? Where you're like, one of us, one of us. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Hostel happened to come along at a time when that's what the zeitgeist was. Those, uh, they called them torture porn. Mm. Uh, I'm just saying it as a as a descriptor. I mean, I loved Cabin Fever when it came out. I remember showing it to all my friends and all of us loving it too because it was like a messy, fun movie that wore its influences on its sleeve and was just out to entertain. And then I saw Hostel and I was like, oh, I don't like this. I never saw Hostel, actually. Maybe I should. And then, oh, Patreon episode. <laughs> yeah, let's do Hostel as a Patreon episode. Have you seen episode. Hostel 2? No, I haven't seen either. That's his cannibal movie where like Ruggiero Deato shows up as literally a guy eating flesh in the film. Well, I've seen his cannibal movie. Awful, awful movie. He was, eh, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, he was ahead of the game. All those woke liberals. Oh, that's right. That The Green Inferno is a sort of anti-SJW movie, isn't <laughs> it? Right. It's about like, okay, so what I love about that movie, if I can digress about this forgotten movie from almost a decade ago, is like the whole movie is about like slacktivists and stuff. It's like, huh, you people, all you, th you think online activism means but anything. The characters of the movie are going to like protests and marches. Exactly. They're in the jungle. They traveled the <laughs> south america they're they're actually not slacktivists <laughs> that's right but you, <laughs> you know, just don't like them because they're annoying <laughs> exactly and then i do like that his career went in weird directions where he's like i guess i'm remaking death games as knock knock with keanu reeves in his career worst performance i mean it's weird that he did the kate blanchett like fantasy children's oh, movie the house is clocks on its walls and, yes and it's weird also that he did that incredibly shitty death wish remake with awful with awful. bruce willis well you know he brought that hip-hop feel to Death Wish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so Eli Ross is just a guy that's charismatic. And I, do people talk about him in a positive light anymore? It I, feels like they I don't. I don't know. If Eli Roth, if you're listening... <laughs> if you're a fan. Uh, I would have you on the podcast. I love you um, did, like, seven commentaries on the first DVD of uh, Cabin Fever, and that really stuck with me. Yeah, and he, ingratiated me to you and be like, oh, I can't wait to see what he does next. I'm sure I'm sure you're a really nice guy. I just have uh, mixed feelings about the films I've seen. I mean, seen. you've never even seen Hostel. So, well, like, I might love it. We'll yeah. do it on Patreon. <laughs> you are not going to love Hostel. Or maybe we'll look back and be like, oh, it was so, you know, forward thinking i'm gonna go into hostel with an open mind because we're now far enough away from that type of movie being so overexposed that mm -hmm. i might be ready to be nostalgic for it now yeah you know the thing about hostel is it's not as bad as the movies that came in its wake where you're like oh god you don't understand anything about what he was trying to do you can sleep well at night dear uh, letter writer that you know eli roth i don't think people you really it. care you yeah. understand so our next letter goes 
Hello, fellows. ICC episode 14. We will definitely do Meryl Streep. Record scratch transition to 280 episodes later. <laughs> well, you made it, guys. Oh, my God. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't can't believe we said that. I am late to the game as a listener and I'm working through early episodes to catch up, so please forgive me if you already covered this topic, but I would like to know more about Lucha Films, specifically the Wrestler vs. Monster movies. These superheroes deserve uh, some of your attention. Thanks for all you do, Chris. So you're talking about Mexican wrestling movies, like Santo, that yeah. sort of thing. Always been on the table during yeah. Shocktober where I'm like, hey, Will, maybe some Lucha movies. Actually, I think this year might be might be the time because... Oh, I, we're locking in the Shocktober, though. Jacqueline, Lucha movies. <laughs> okay, let's, let's do it. And I would be interested because I don't think I've ever seen one all the way through. Did you buy that set that VCI put out? No. Okay, whew. If anyone's listening to this, don't buy those Lucha sets, because not only are they just like seemingly standard definition versions Vaseline out of existence to make it look high def, but they're also new dubs of people doing comedic voices. Oh, no. And the original tracks are not available on the disc, the English one or the Spanish ones due to rights issues. No, fuck that. Yeah, so don't get those. Get the DVD set that was put out by a skate company that you can maybe find in like a used DVD store somewhere. Our next letter is from Marcus Scott, and he goes, hey, UK listener here, I am contemplating seeing Satan Tango on the big screen in London. My problem is that I live in Leeds, which is 200 miles away, and I would need to book a hotel the night before. It's playing at 10 a.m. and two trains. The cost of it all would be well over 100 pounds. What is your advice, and what's the furthest length you've gone to see a film on the big screen? Love the show, Marcus. Um, I would say uh, do it. And here's why. Because you when will, are you going to see Satan Tango on the big screen again? You, you will always treasure the memory. Mm -hmm. Even if you end up not liking the movie, you will like this will be your answer to that question of like, wow, I, I went, I, I did a pilgrimage. I was a soldier of cinema and I spent the day in a hundred pounds to go see Satan Tango. That's that's fun. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think that's the most important thing. It's that not just the movie itself. And I mean, seeing St. Tango in the theater, that's the perfect way to do it. It starts at 10 a.m. <laughs> like, that's very early. I guess the movie's seven hours long, so. Yeah, I mean, I remember I, I almost went to see it once and they said two intermissions and a dinner break. And I thought, I just can't. And now you think about it every day, like that woman on the boat that you saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wish I did it. I wish I did it. So. Don't make my mistake. And what's the furthest that you've gone to see a movie? Mm, I mean, I just went to New York to go see uh, Grady Hendrix's marathon he did of six uh, Hong Kong films on 35mm. And I gotta say, what a delightful time that was. I think, yeah, Toronto to New York is the farthest I've gone just to specifically see, see a, a movie. movie. Yeah. I don't think I've ever gone further than that. And that was six. And I knew that if I didn't see them on the big screen, then I would never see those 35 millimeter prints. And a bunch of them I'd never seen. Actually, almost all of them I had never seen, except for Hard Boiled, which played right in the middle, which is the perfect spot for Hard Boiled and 35 millimeter. Oh, man. Wish I was there. <laughs> I uh, I flew out to a different Grady Hendrix six film uh, Hong Kong marathon. Yeah, I wasn't at that one. But, you know, mine was better. So <laughs> Yeah, it, it probably was. But hey, you know, next time um, we'll go. We'll go together. Yeah, it'll be fun. We're going to go to the drive in. This oh, summer, we didn't right? actually talk about this yeah so, we'll, we'll say not, okay we're not talking about this well we can talk about it a little bit because uh the mahoning drive-in uh, always does amazing programming during the summer and me and will we're not gonna say which one it is you can look at the schedule and probably guess but there's a day of movies that me and will are like that's our satan tanko <laughs> yeah we don't see those on 35 millimeter Let's just book our tickets after this. <laughs> yeah, let's just book our tickets because we have to go to that. And I know that uh, some people that work at the Mahoning Drive-In uh, actually listen to the show. Oh, so. well, I expect to be greeted as a king. <laughs> the red carpet rolled out. So, yeah, hopefully go. 
or else you'll regret. 100 pounds? That's like, I don't know, 150 bucks Canadian, I think. It's fine. It's worth yeah. it, actually. It's a vacation. Consider it a vacation. And if you can go with somebody else, that's even greater. But only if they know what they're getting into. Otherwise, do it by yourself and you'll still enjoy it. I remember going to, again, New York to see a Kung Fu movie marathon over three days by myself. And I'm glad I went by myself because if I had gone with uh, my partner at the time, she would have hated it. So, <laughs> be like, do we have to watch all of these? And I could just watch there with a big grin on my face, cheering with the other people. Like you'll do, watching Satan Tango, of course. <laughs> you'll be hooting and hollering when the fat guy finally dies. <laughs> <laughs> now, when that dance goes on screen, everyone's dancing with some, right? Oh, man. It's like Rocky Horror. So thank you very much for those letters. And if you have any questions or comments for us, send them at importcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. So what are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? We will be returning to the work of Doris Wishman, the queen of the sexploitation film. And what prompted this rewatching of one of her films? Well, uh, Something Weird and Agfa put out an amazing box set, long time in the making. It's called Doris Wishman, The Twilight Years, but it's all the ones that you've heard about. It's the later ones. Mm -hmm. It's the Chesty Morgan ones. It's Let Me Die a Woman. It's Keyholes Are for Peeping, starring Sammy Petrillo. I literally started writing an email being like, me and Will are available to do a commentary on Keyholes Are for Peeping. But I realized ah, it's shipping in a week, like it's too late. <laughs> I know that there are people who listen to this podcast who are involved in Blu-ray companies. So if you listen to this every week, I've never said, we don't have ads on the show. <laughs> like, you don't have to jump to your uh, MP3 player like I always do and be like, skip, 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 skip. <laughs> until finally, actually, maybe the middle when I thank people, but we don't do it. So if you appreciate it just become a patreon subscriber and you'll get all this back content if you enjoy it every week you'll enjoy the that, stuff that's that we true do. it's like five years of stuff at this point <laughs> yeah almost 300 back year episodes of the weirdest stuff too like you want to hear us talk about eli ross's death wish for 20 minutes well we do it we talked about uh the guinea pig movies at one point <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah what well, is one of the best patreon episodes i have to go through it and like look and be like we did an episode on that i can't remember i just flushed it out of my brain the second <laughs> it's done yep. so next week on the podcast sellout month continues and and what is a bigger sellout than doing an episode on JLG, Jean de Godard? Now, longtime listeners may remember that episode four wow. was our first Jean-Luc Godard episode. And by the way, that episode was the first time that my uh, current long-term partner heard my voice. Really? Yes, she heard that episode. So you, you, wow. know, you never know. Does she still listen to the show? I hope not. No, she doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> But you never know how just agreeing to your pal doing a podcast can mm -hmm. change your life in a multitude of ways. But wow. Anyway. Was she on like, uh, you know... An <laughs> well, we had mutual friends, too. Uh, I was going to say, like, she's in an elevator or a podcast is playing or something. And, and then she looks over. <laughs> yeah. Dear audience, what is the Jean-Luc Godard subject that you want to hear two people talk about? Something so massive that it seems impossible to do on a podcast. Yes, that's right. We're going to be talking about Eastwald du Cinema. That's right. His epic, what is it, five, six part video series summarizing the history of cinema. There are people, there are a number of the real hardcore Jean-Luc Godard fans who say this is his greatest work. Certainly it is his magnum opus in some ways. Uh, all of his thinking is in here. I have always had, I would say, uh, mixed feelings about it personally. You probably have less than that. Yes. <laughs> uh, I like Godard more than you do. Mm -hmm. uh, but I like 
Kadar well, as the trickster figure that he is. <laughs> I mean, we we have we have long for as long as I've known you, we've bonded over the subject of Jean-Luc Godard. Mm-hmm. He's interesting to talk about and to think about. And we're going to crack this knot, okay? We're going to figure this out. We're going to watch the whole thing again and we're going to do justice to it. I'm going to sit there. No phone. I'm going to no sit phone. there and watch it. <laughs> you know what? I think uh I think Can he... you do it? Can you come to this table and say that you sat and watched all of it without distraction? Not in one go. That's uh, I can because when I watched it, I didn't even have a smartphone. So, mm, but uh, I, you're a different man now. <laughs> can I just? Yeah, it might be hard, but can I just say, I think you're going to enjoy it. Mm. It's got a lot of uh, flashing colors, a lot of uh, images. <laughs> Listen, I invested in that French book that is just images from the film, <laughs> along with quotations. So I'm ready. I'm ready to go. All right, we're going to do that. And uh, until next week, I'm Justin the Clue, and I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. There's a momentous event that happened this year, Will. It's promised to happen twice a year until 2025. And that's a new Charlie Roxburgh, Matt Farley film has come out. Magic Spot. Now, you never know. There may be people listening to us for the very first time this week. Mm-hmm. Every comic book could be your first. That's what Stan Lee used to say. So Matt Farley and Charlie Roxburgh are a pair of New England-based filmmakers. They make... I guess you could call them DIY movies, but they've been doing it for over 20 years. They've made uh, 12 or 13, maybe 15 movies at this point. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but Don't Let the River Beast Get You is the most famous one. They make movies with their friends and family, and they are like, I mean this in a nice way, the most elaborate and best home movies ever made. Backyard movies is probably a better way to say it. Backyard movies, that's right. But they're real movies, too. Mm, They're legit movies. And Magic Spot is kind of their first in an offensive that started with uh, Hurt You Got Married, which is they figured out what their workflow is. Like, they shoot in black and white, they shoot fast, and they want to make these movies at a quick pace in a way that they haven't done since college. So when we first started watching the Farley Roxburgh movies, a movie like Don't Let the River Beast Get You is fun because it's sort of like a 50s monster movie. It's sort of like a movie that kids would make in their backyard, but it's as if those kids grew up, went to college, came back, were still making the movies in their backyard with like their family and everyone, and they're all reciting this loquacious dialogue full of words they learned at college. But it's like... I feel like I'm hearing you talk and I'm like, Will's not doing them justice. I'm not doing them justice. Because <laughs> the it thing. sounds amateur, which is not it's the not kind what of it movies is. that they're because, doing. Because the movies, like, they, they seem amateur, but they're actually not. There's yes. a lot of thinking behind it. A lot of logic. And, you know, they've said in a great book called Moturn on Moturn. Who wrote Moturn on Moturn, by the way? <laughs> uh, Will Sloan and Justin DeClue. Yeah. Um, where they say they don't really talk about theme that much or, like, style when they make movies. And it's very organic, but I think it's a an organic that comes because Charlie and Matt, Charlie being the director and Matt being the star and they're both co-writers, they work through it very carefully when it reaches a point where they can shoot the film. Well, and they also have just such a shared sensibility. Mm-hmm. They have so many shared reference points, shared sense of humor. So they don't they don't have to overthink it. And so Hurt You Got Married was probably the darkest film they've ever made. And now we have Magic Spot, which... Man, it's tough to pitch. It's a time travel movie. 
It's a time travel movie. I mean, the reason why I'm sort of like, I guess, playing up the amateur element is because I want to make clear that the last three movies have been a marked shift in what they're doing. Like the style is still similar. It's still there's still laughs to be had in some of the some of the weirdness of the acting and some of the artificiality of it all. But like they're not just comedies anymore. They're not just monster movies. They're- I think they're moving away from more straightforward genre stuff, which they did early on in their career because they loved it. And also because they thought that would sell. It didn't like people did not buy what they were selling. And they finally reached a point where there's enough people watching. I mean, it should be way more, but that they can go down different alleyways like magic spot. Uh, Matt has talked about that one of the main inspirations were Hallmark movies and they wanted to do their version of a Hallmark film. That's amazing. <laughs> So yeah, Magic Spot is a time travel movie where they find a magic spot in the forest that can transport them back in time. Uh, But also, because of abnormalities in the continuum, it is possible to die while traveling in time because of your body adjusting to different temperatures. What a great concept. Like you say that and it's like, oh, these are not like, they don't know what they're doing filmmaking. They thought this stuff through. (laughs) Okay, it's their most densely plotted movie as the most rules. But imagine if Primer... It co-starred your dad and your mom and your <laughs> yes. uncles. I mean, technically, Primer does co-star the yeah, director's yeah. dad, man, but who we cannot speak of now. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Um, but in a charming way, it's a film with no villain either, which is like usually uh, like death to these kind of movies. But that's why it's so wonderful. So it's it's super funny. I don't I don't know how to describe this movie because it's indescribable even by their standards. All I can say is please watch this movie because it's so funny, but it's also like very touching as well. And they've released it independently on Vimeo and you can buy it. And that's the only way to see it now. So see it that way, because when you make a purchase on that, all of that goes to their pocket. Some people have messaged me and be like, I'm waiting for the Blu-ray. You're going to wait a year because it's going to be included with their next movie that's going to go to Blu-ray. So pay for it now. Enjoy it. Soak it in. It's not that much money. It's, it's 15 bucks, folks. And you know it's going right to them. You you know, you pay can, less if you go see a movie in first run right now. And it's going to be shitty compared to this movie. <laughs> now, is this a movie, though, that you recommend as the first Moturn one? Man, it's hard for me to say because I'm so deeply immersed in this world now. What's funny is that I wouldn't think that Metal Detector Maniac would be like the first Motorn movie. But recently, the Just the Discs YouTube channel and podcast have discovered Matt Farley and they watched Metal Detector Mania and loved it. And like a whole bunch of people have bought it since then and they've been loving it too. So you can start like just cold from Metal Detector Mania. <laughs> it's, it's hard because the first one I saw was Don't Let the River Beast mm-hmm. Get You. And I remember the sensation of watching that movie, figuring out, like realizing as it was unfolding what was going on. And so I almost want people to have that experience, the same one I have. I mean, Local Legends is the skeleton key where you're like, oh, okay, I get it now. <laughs> Local Legends is Local Legends is the one that... Like, that should be in the Pantheon with, like, you know, Slacker or Clerks Mm. or any of those, like, Sundance breakout movies, but it wasn't. What's interesting about Charlie and Matt at this point in their career is they seem right on the cusp of, like, being really big. Of, like, just this one famous person will recommend them, and then, like, thousands of new fans will come in. I think it's going to happen. Yes, I think so, too. I I think because they are actually at this point already cult filmmakers. And they have such a catalog that Mm. it's not like, oh, I can't wait to see what they do next. It's like, I can't wait to look at everything that they've done. I love going on Letterboxd when when one of their movies (laughs) comes out. We're both Matt Farley's now. (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're... I'm like invest in this. I'm checking the letterboxed reviews of Magic Spot like I own stock in it, which, which I don't. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but I mean, you are a uh, co-producer on the film. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm OK. I'm cr- 
credited as an associate producer on Magic Spot, but that's only because Matt called out, hey, if you send me 200 bucks, you get to have an associate producer I credit. can tell you, Peter Kaplaski was very jealous that you swooped in as the last person before he could. I bet if Peter wanted Ask, to. Yeah. <laughs> I think so, too. But this is why it's great, is that, like, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen his films, like, you're still technically right on the ground floor as it's starting to rise. Like, yeah. you can call Matt and you can speak to him on the phone. You can watch all these movies. You can be the person that can introduce your friends to these films and be like, look at this. You've never seen anything like this. So mm -hmm. this is the time to get into this whole Charlie Farley universe. And I hope that everybody listening to this watches Magic Spot. <laughs>